1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today we begin a special message about Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The title of the message is, A Different Kind of King.
2: Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start there. I'm going to be in two other main places today. If you want to save the spots, Exodus 12 and Luke 19 we will be in those three sections of scripture for the most part. I'll be referencing a few other places, but um, that will be the main essence of our study. We'll Return to some of these verses later on. So, even if even though you think we started Acts 10, you might want to save it because I will be returning back to a couple verses there at the end of the message. So, Acts 10, Exodus 12, and Luke 19. Acts 10, Exodus 12, and Luke 19. Now, when we talk about the gospel message, the message of the gospel, it includes. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, his resurrection, and then of course his return to rule—that's all a part of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Peter preached these things in Acts chapter ten, verses thirty-six through forty-three. This was the first sermon preached to the Gentiles. See, he is invited to Cornelius' house. Well, the Lord tells me to go. To go, he tells him ahead of time, and then Cornelius invites him to his house. Cornelius invites his family there. He invites his friends there and peter is going to step into a gentile's house to preach the gospel for the first time and you would think if on a momentous occasion like this that you would make sure you emphasize the necessary parts of the gospel right like you want to get it all correct because if you mess this up that's not going to go well and so what we get here is one of the clearest full presentations of the gospel in the scripture in acts chapter 10 verse 36 Peter says, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached. And what was that word, that message? Verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all those things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, Jesus' life, whom they slew and hanged on a tree, his death, verse 40, him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but unto witnesses chosen before by God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead, his resurrection, verse 42. Verse 42. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus, which was ordained of God to be the judge of the living and the dead, the quick and the dead, his return to rule and reign. Verse 43, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. That's the gospel right there. All of these elements of the gospel message are right here. Now, these were not new ideas. All of these elements of the gospel message were predicted in the Old Testament. And one of the places that the Old Testament does so is in the feasts of Israel. They all point to the gospel. Now, the first three feasts that they celebrated corresponded to the first three parts of the gospel message. Jesus' life, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus's death, we have the feast of Passover, and Jesus's resurrection, we have the feast of first fruits. And so I would like to examine the life of Christ, which is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and which was foreshadowed in the feast of unleavened bread. So, turn to Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read a section of scripture from Leviticus 23 before we go to Exodus 12, but Leviticus 23 is where Moses is laying out the timing of these three feasts. So I want to give you a little bit of backdrop before we get into where this feast came from. So Exodus 12, I'm going to read from Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 11. It says in Leviticus 23, 4, "...these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which He shall proclaim in their seasons." So they all had set times when they were supposed to be done. "...in the fourteenth day of the first month, at evening, is the Lord's Passover." Then on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you will have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. So the first day of unleavened bread is a, like a Sabbath. But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord for seven days. And in the seventh day, the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's also a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. So again, you have another a Sabbath at the beginning and the end of this feast. And then in verses 9, it goes on and it talks about when they do firstfruits. So God gave instructions to Israel through Moses to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of Nisan. That's the first month of Israel's religious calendar. Then they were to celebrate the next day unleavened bread from the 15th of Nisan to the 21st of Nisan. And then the Feast of Firstfruits would be celebrated on the day after whatever Sabbath came after the end of unleavened bread. So After the 10th plague, where did this thing come about? Well, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh finally let Israel leave Egypt. And God instructed the nation of Israel to commemorate that event with two feasts. One feast to remember that God spared their firstborn when he saw the blood of the lamb on the door, the feast of Passover, right? And then one feast to remember how God suddenly changed the situation in Egypt, Remember, even all these plagues are happening. Pharaoh's saying, I will not let you go. I will not let you go. And then sometimes he'd say, yeah, I'll let you do this. But then he'd go back on it. There was no hope that they were ever going to leave Egypt through all this situation other than the promise of God. And then all of a sudden, after the 10th plague, things radically changed. There wasn't like a sit down, have a meeting. It was no, get out. And so it was so sudden that they didn't have time to bake their bread with leaven. The Lord said, have your traveling clothes on, get ready to go, because he is going to kick you out as soon as this plague is done. And we find this command to celebrate that event, that they were, had to suddenly leave Egypt, that they were suddenly set free by the Lord from their slavery in Egypt here in Exodus 12, verses 15 through 20, to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. It says in verse 15 of Exodus 12, "'Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation. In the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them except that which man every man must eat, that only may be done of you.'" And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, this is why you shall observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month and the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening." Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eats that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations shall you eat only unleavened bread. So here we see, if you read other scriptures, you'll find there were also national components to the feast, but these are the personal components to the feast. This is what every Israeli had to do. And there were three personal components here. First off, you had to take time to go through your home and get rid of all the leaven in the home. Verse 15, he says, you know, even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. The second component is you could do no work on the first day of the feast and the last day of the feast. We saw that in verse 16. And then thirdly, during the seven days, you can only eat unleavened bread. Now, God spells out in verse 17 very clearly what they're remembering and why they're celebrating. They are remembering and celebrating the freedom that he gave them from their slavery in Egypt. It says, For in this self-same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. That's why you do this. Now, as the Israeli people through the centuries have celebrated this feast, there are many traditions that have sprung up around the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, One of the most commonly used leavening agents is yeast. And so in preparation for this feast, all yeast and all products with yeast in them have to be removed from the home. They actually begin this process not on the start of the feast, but the month of the feast. From the first day, they start clearing all products with any type of leavening agent, primarily yeast products, out of the home. I, but that's not always an easy task. It's not like you just go grab the roll of you know, bread and just chuck it into the trash or give it away. I was eating last night. I had a a sandwich that my wife made for me, and I was relaxing in a chair and eating rather than at the table. And so I'm trying to be careful because every time I took a bite, what happens? Well, the bread just doesn't cooperate. You know, little breadcrumbs spread everywhere, right? Well, because bread leaves behind breadcrumbs, part of the cleaning is going through the home with a brush to sweep away any possible offenders. One Jewish mother with very young children said, it's easy to find the obvious loaves of bread, but you have to really hunt for the Cheerios between the couch cushions. And if you have kids, you understand. Now, if that sounds tedious, thinking, how can I get every breadcrumb out of my house? If it sounds tedious, that's because it is. It's impossible for you to eliminate every crumb of leaven from your home. Now, there's a lesson in that we'll get to later on today. In addition to this, it's very common in Jewish homes as they get to the Feast of Unleavened Bread to hide some of leaven products in an obvious place. And then the children are basically, they're going to find the final pieces of leaven that are in the home. And then they bring them to dad and dad disposes of them, usually puts them in a fire or something. And then he declares that the home is finally leaven free. So what is God's deal with leaven? Does he just not like rich crackers? I mean, what's the deal? Why is he telling people they're going to be cut off? Well, Jesus, interestingly enough, when he taught on the earth, he taught his disciples to beware of the leaven of the religious leaders and the leaven of Herod. He said, beware of both those things. Leaven in the scripture speaks of how sin, how false teaching are both dangerous because of how quickly they can infect a person's life and a community. Very similar to how yeast spreads in bread. And so cleaning the home and eating only unleavened bread is a picture that represents how God set his people free from the slavery of Egypt, but also from the slavery of their sin. And so it was very important to the Lord that no one use any leaven during the entirety of the feast. Exodus chapter 12 mentions this eight times in just six verses. One of the things that is often forgotten when we think about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is that the seventh day after the Exodus, so what would become the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread? That's the same day that God destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, when their slavery was finally put away, when their slavers were finally eradicated, when they were forever freed from their bondage. You see, God promised total freedom to Israel, and that's what this feast is all about. Now, Feast of Unleavened Bread comes right after Passover, and so there are connections between the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. In fact, in fact there is a Passover element uh, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, one that shows up in the Feast of Passover when they had to examine the Passover lamb. Now, they weren't looking for leaven in the Passover lamb, but if you read in chapter 12 of Exodus in verses 5 and 6, it mentions that on the 10th day of the month, they would bring the lamb into their home that they were going to slaughter. And someone told me this morning, a Jewish believer, they told me this morning that three and a half days is when they would slaughter the lamb. And of course, how long was Jesus' ministry on the earth? It was for three and a half years. Three and a half years they observed him. He lived with them. That's why you would bring this lamb into your home. It's for it says in Exodus 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, unleavened. It shall be a male the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. It couldn't be just, a, you know, some prized lamb that you had prepared for this. You had to take it from the common flocks, just like Jesus had to become a man. And he shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. For three and a half days, a little lamb would be walking around the house. Kids would probably name it. You'd be inspecting it. You had to make sure it didn't have any broken bones. It didn't have a blind eye or it didn't have a bum leg or it didn't have a bad attitude. People laugh even for 25 years of telling that joke. No leaven, no blemish. And when that's over, and this thing has lived with you for three and a half years, you've observed it, examined it. Then it says, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. That sounds a bit overkill for one little lamb. Everybody's going to jump it. Of course, that's not what is happening here. There's more meaning to that. During those four days, you would ensure that your lamb was qualified to be the Passover lamb. They say, what does that have to do with Palm Sunday, Pastor Will? What does it have to do with Jesus' life, that part of the gospel? Why is Jesus' life so important as it relates to Palm Sunday? Well, it's because of what the people look to Jesus for on Palm Sunday. Turn to Luke 19, and we're going to track through some things here in Luke 19. But, but as you're there, I want to read a couple of verses from Luke 12 on the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, because Luke doesn't give us this information. In John 12, verses 12 and 13, it says, And on the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, palm trees are not, you might find them in Jerusalem now because they've been brought in but they're not native to that area of the promised land. However, the route that you would take, one would normally take to come down to Jerusalem, is not the straight north to south route. You would not come through those mountains. You would come down from Galilee or, or from the mountains of Judea, you'd come down into the Jordan Valley, and then you would come down that valley, and, and then when you hit Jericho, which is the city of palm trees, you would make a turn west to come to into, up to Jerusalem, and you'd begin to come up into the Judean hills, the mountains, and, and make the trek to Jerusalem. And so as, as they were coming down to Jericho, you're getting closer to Jerusalem. As Jesus, we'd, we learn about that. He, comes, he actually comes through Jericho, preaches as he's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem for Passover. And, and it mentions that the people get their palm trees, and they find out Jesus is headed that way. This massive crowd is following. And as he's coming to, and he comes to the Mount of Olives... They begin waving these palm branches back and forth and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, rescue us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're the one. You're the one who can rescue us. You know, the palm branches were not a part of Passover. They're a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. Waving palm branches before the Lord is is nothing new to to an Israeli. That was a common part of their heritage, but not during Passover. Passover. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles. The reason they waved the palm branches during the Feast of Tabernacles is because what they celebrated during the Feast of Tabernacles was that we're not in the desert anymore. I don't have to make my tent every night and look up at the stars because now I'm home. Now I'm free. Now I'm in the land. And they would wave it before the Lord saying, Lord, thanks for setting us free from Egypt and thanks for bringing us home. And so as they're waving those branches in front of Jesus, what they're saying is, we're not free. Set us free, please. Set us free again. Do you see us here? Rescue us. Now, what qualified Jesus to be the one who could give them this freedom in their mind? Why did they look to him? Well, first off, Jesus promised he would set them free. In John chapter 8, we have that famous verse where it mentions that many believed on Jesus. He, he had a, a powerful moment there where he was teaching, and many believed on him. And Jesus said, "Well, listen, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse that we're all familiar with. People who aren't even believers use that verse, you know? <laughs> he promised them freedom. You know, it's funny when he said that they didn't react very well to that. <laughs> uh, it says that the many of the religious leaders there they said, ah, we, we are Abraham's, you know, uh, Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to any man." And you're like, uh, "Do you not remember Egypt? Uh, do you, how about taking a look at the Antonia Fortress up there, right next to the temple, and all the Roman soldiers up there? What do you mean you've never been in bondage to any man? You're in bondage right now." And Jesus there in in John chapter eight. In response to that, he said this in verse 34. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is a servant of sin. And the servant does not abide in the house forever. But the Son abides forever. I'm not a servant of sin. Look at me. Examine me. I I don't have any leaven. You do, but I don't. And if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He had told them, he had promised them that, that he was that unblemished lamb, that he was the one who is unleavened, that he, he promised them freedom. And secondly, as he invited them to examine his life, for three and a half years they did. For three and a half years he walked in their midst, lived amongst them. They knew his name. And in those three and a half years, there was no fault to be found. It was perfect love that brought Jesus from heaven to earth. He had received a prophetic announcement from God's servant, John the Baptist. He had purely lived out God's law his entire life. And he had poured into others doing good everywhere he went, is what Peter tells us. He went about doing good everywhere he went. That's why they looked to him. He had promised them freedom and they had examined his life and they said, you're the one. You're the one who can set us free. You're the unblemished lamb. You're the unleavened bread. Set us free. So here's the big question. (laughs) We know that things didn't work out like they seemed they would on that Palm Sunday, right? We know that's not how it ended. In fact, we know it, it took a very quick turn in a different direction. Jesus knew that would happen. Because the same day that people were crying out, Hosanna, set us free, save now. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept. In Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, this is when he came near so This is after they've said these things, after they've been praising him, saying, you're the one, set us free. It says he came near to the city, he beheld it, he looked at it, and he wept over it. This is not the weeping of a, a tear just kind of coming down out of the corner of the eye and rolling down the cheek. This is of convulsive sobbing. Jesus was a mess emotionally. He was heartbroken, saying, if you had known, even you, at least in this your day, the things which belong unto your peace, if you had only understood What didn't they understand? Why did this not happen the way that they looked at it in that moment? What didn't they understand about this special day? What about him did they get wrong? Well, I can promise you this. It wasn't Jesus's unblemished life. It's not like they all of a sudden looked at him and then like two days afterwards, news came out that Jesus had a mistress or, or Jesus had been unfaithful in the ministry or he'd been unfaithful with finances or mom and dad did an expose on him and it came out. I can guarantee you there was nothing about his life that they examined and they thought, well, no, he's not unleavened. When John the Baptist was in prison and he was getting discouraged, he asked Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? This is not how I thought this would play out, Jesus. I mean, we, we, we talked about this. <laughs> You're my cousin. We talked about this. This is not how I expected it to work out. I did not imagine a prison ministry. Should we look for somebody else? Jesus' answer was clear. Tell John I'm doing everything that the Messiah was prophesied to do. Tell him what you see. Tell him I'm doing everything that the scripture says the Messiah would do. So it's not Jesus' unblemished life that only leaves his promise. That's the, That can be the thing that, that they misunderstood. So was Jesus lying to them when he said he'd set them free? No. Or was it possible they didn't want the freedom that Jesus offered? What did Jesus offer them on Palm Sunday? What kind of Savior did Jesus claim to be? The freedom that Jesus offered to the people was his absolute ownership. He said, I will set you free from your sin to become mine. And thus, this proper view of freedom begins with reverence for the Son. Jesus did not promise them a freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. It wasn't a freedom to anarchy in their lives, a freedom to just, well, I'm the one who chooses what I want to do, I'm the one who decides. It was a freedom from sin and a transition to the ownership of the Lord.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app